Father, um, we thank you for this morning that you've given us, and we thank you for the way you have fearfully and wonderfully made us, uh, for the value we have, not because of what we own or do or say, but because we are made in your image. Uh, thank you for even the way you have entrusted us with this great calling uh, to be your representatives here on this earth, and even to use the gifts you've given us to create a culture. Um, help us to steward that calling well, uh, to uphold the value of life in all of its forms, even life in the womb, and to do it all with grace, by your spirit, and for your glory. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Uh, we live at a moment where there are a lot of very important questions that people are asking on the issue of human life, and particularly to the issue of when you have the right to take it. Um, abortion is a flat, at a flashpoint for sure, um, with the overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade over the summer in the uh, Casey versus Hobbs decision. Uh, people are again looking at this issue and asking big, big questions. Uh, what are a woman's rights over her own body? Uh, what are the privacy implications of someone wanting to end a pregnancy? Uh, what are the economic hardships that come with uh, carrying a pregnancy to term? What are the mental health impacts of the same thing? These are all really big, really important questions. And yet, in one sense, they are the exact wrong set of questions to start thinking about this issue. Uh, you can't get to the right answer until you ask the right question. And that's why I'm so thankful that, that right in the new year, a article appeared in the New York Times by someone by the name of Elizabeth Diaz. Uh, the title of that article is, When Does Life Begin? Now that's the right question to be asking. When does life begin? Now, it's a very thought-provoking article. I invite you to read it on your own time. Uh, Ms. Diaz does a, a very good job explaining the political flashpoint moment we're in, uh, the very, very strong opinions being held, and really the crux of the issue. It all really turns on whether the inhabitant of the womb is considered a human person, a life, or not. Uh, I wish that Ms. Diaz came to the full conclusion that I think the Bible will lead us to. I hope to convince you of this morning that yes, from the moment of conception, we are in fact made in the image of God and with intrinsic value. Now, even though she doesn't get quite that far, she does acknowledge that the tools of our, our world is trying to use to answer this question are inadequate. Uh, she says, this is an issue that transcends science and politics and law. And to that, I give a hearty amen. Uh, in fact, I don't think you can make sense of this issue unless you start with a God who creates us lovingly in his own image for our good and for his glory. Now, uh, this morning, I want to talk for a second before we dive into this sermon about why I'm choosing to preach about this political issue um, and why we don't, Sunday after Sunday, bring up every political issue that comes up, and there are many very, very important ones. 
If you've not been here at uh, Castleton Community Church for very long, um, you may not have heard us talk about uh, how we think about both our, our need to stay united and our, our need to not compromise on what the Bible clearly teaches. Uh, Romans 14 tells us that at some point, each and every one of us as believers will individually give an account to our Lord Jesus. Uh, that includes the way we have acted in, in every sphere of life. Uh, it also, we also realize that the Bible speaks very clearly on some issues, and on other issues, uh, we have to use implication and logic in order to make applications. Uh, so we have uh, adopted a shorthand. Um, there are some issues that are a straight line from your Bible to how you act as a Christian. On those issues, we as a church will preach and bind your conscience and tell you, you must do this because the Bible says so. Um, on other issues, uh, you have to use a series of steps of logic and wisdom and um, moral reasoning. Um, those we call jagged line issues. That is, there's multiple steps for you to be able to arrive at a particular application that you as a Christian feel like you have to do because of something the Bible teaches. Now on jagged line issues, we need to apply a lot more humility and grace toward each other when we disagree. Uh, that's the reason why you won't hear me from the pulpit telling you what you must think about public sanitation or the particular curriculums that are being taught in our public schools or uh, how you as a parent decide to deal with your child sleeping through the night. Uh, all important issues, all issues that at some point you have to make a decision on, and yet ones that are a jagged line from the Bible to how you live as a Christian. Now, in our understanding as a church, this issue of the sanctity of life and the life of the unborn is a straight line issue. And I'm going to hopefully make that case this morning, if you're not convinced of that, that the Bible clearly teaches that God makes us in his image from the very beginning. And that means we must uphold the value of all human life. Now, as a result of that, I will preach on this. I will do so, hopefully in a winsome, gracious way, but in also in an unapologetic way. Uh, there will be three sections to the sermon this morning uh, as we cover this topic in this topical sermon, three sections. The, the first is made. God made us, made Second is murder, what it is to take life without authorization is murder. And the third is our way forward, mercy, mercy, the hope there is for all of us, no matter what we have or have not done in this life. And in all this, I hope you'll be convinced of this, because we are made in the image of God, uh, we must protect and value all human life, even life in the womb. Uh, let's begin in that first section, made. Uh, I'm, as I mentioned, I am not going to begin with the assumption that you agree with me necessarily, that life begins at conception and therefore that the inhabitant of the womb is an image bearer of God from the very beginning. Uh, in fact, there have been Christians that have uh, had questions about that idea 
um, going way back, all the way to the Middle Ages. Uh, there was a very popular opinion uh, that life started when you began to feel the movement of the baby, the moment of quickening. Uh, people thought that just like how Genesis describes God's uh, breathing life into Adam and Eve in the garden, that the, when you felt the baby move, that was the moment where God breathed the spirit into the baby and made them a living person. Um, now, while there have been Christians that held that in the past, and even some that are still trying to argue for it today, I think when we look carefully at what the Bible teaches, uh, we will find a different reality. Uh, I'm going to make my argument first from the Bible, then I'll move out to history, uh, then we'll look at science, and then make some applications. Uh, first, from the Bible. Uh, the Bible consistently uh, attributes life in the womb to, as, having a, uh, as being a pers uh, being, uh, personhood to life in the womb, and consistently does so to the very beginning of where life happens. Uh, you can take a number of verses, for example, Jeremiah 1.5, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Uh, the implication there, before his life started, before he's even taken form, God knows him. He is a person, in a sense. And God has a particular plan for the calling of that prophet. Uh, certainly, you can draw implications from the birth narratives of Jesus. Um, the miracle of the incarnation starts with the promise of a conception. Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, certainly, Jesus will grow and one day be born and be known as a, a man. Uh, but the miracle seems to start with the conception itself. Uh, certainly, you can make the case even more strongly that Jesus and John the Baptist are persons acting, even recognizing each other, when they have that meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, both in their mother's wombs, John leaping for joy at being in the presence, not a potential life, but of the life of his Savior, Jesus. Uh, both of those texts or others, I, I think, strongly tilt us toward this conclusion. But I think the most central of all of them is the text we read uh, right before this sermon, Psalm 139. If you have your Bible, flip open there, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Uh, psalm 139 is a psalm concerned with a God who knows us. Uh, David, who wrote it, knew that God knows us uh, better than anyone, uh, better than, uh, more intimately than a spouse, better than a best friend, better than you even know yourself. Uh, God knows us so well that he even knows the words we're going to say before they're on our lips to say them. Uh, that God that knows us always knows us. Uh, no matter where we might try and travel, God will still be there to know us. Uh, if you hopped on a boat and tried to go across the farthest sea, when you arrived, you would find God's spirit there to greet you because he knows you no matter where you go. Uh, if you hopped on a rocket ship and went up to heaven, when you arrived, you would find that God still knew you by his spirit. He's right there with you. Uh, even if you managed to hitch a ride on the strongest submersible you could find, go down to the depths of the grave itself. 
you still wouldn't be hidden from God's sight uh, because God knows us. And that knowing even extends to the most mysterious, the darkest parts of our existence, even to life in the womb. That's what verses 13 through 16 are about. Uh, something that was a complete mystery to ancient man. What is happening in the womb as a baby is forming? Uh, David describes it with poetry. And in that description is obvious. He attributes to God the creation of a person. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 13. Uh, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Uh, the womb may be dark and hidden, but really the womb is God's workshop. Uh, the God who said, let there be light, and it was, says, let there be life, and there is. Uh, yes, he uses our biology and our human actions to bring it about, and yet, no, David is not at all ashamed to say, God is the one doing the creating. Uh, but not only is he doing the creating, uh, there is a stage when we are not yet ourselves, not yet formed. And yet, according to God and in his sight, we are the person that he intends for us to be. Verse 15, for my frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Uh, David imagines a, a moment when he has not yet taken shape. And in that moment, even then, God knows him. Right from the beginning, from uh, the very moment of conception, uh, God has an intention for each and every human life. He knows us, he values us, and he intends for us to value everyone, even from the very beginning. Now, all of this gets tossed together in verse the middle of this, the, uh, this uh, section, uh, describing in praise what it is God does. Uh, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Uh, what's the right response to what God does in the womb? According to David, it is praise and wonder. I think the Bible, when you pay close attention to it, strongly, strongly suggests, and I would even go so far as to say, it's very difficult to make sense of these verses in the Bible, unless you come to the conclusion that God himself makes us, and that we have personhood from the moment we are conceived. Now, that's my biblical argument. Um, now, I know that that for some is Helpful, especially if you're a Christian, I hope you want to know what the Bible says, but I know there are other aspects to how people try and answer this question. So I'm going to also take the time to make a historical argument. Uh, I'm not the first person to have ever taken these verses and put them together in this way. And in fact, the, what you know as the political movement, um, as uh, the being pro-life, 
Christians today that are a part of that, they are not the first people to make arguments like this. Uh, if you go all the way back to the second century, there's an early Christian document called the Didache, uh, which very explicitly show that the early Christians rejected the practice of Roman abortion and understood that doing so was to uh, violate the prohibition against murder for those made in the image of God. Uh, Christian tradition has this rooting for this subject uh, going all the way back to the earliest centuries. And, and in fact, you go further back than that, first century Judaism. Also, this was an unthinkable, morally repugnant act. Now, I have to admit, that is not, uh, history is not uh, with one voice on this. Um, as is often the case on many issues, uh, people uh, shift their uh, positions over time, and I think especially so as we get further and further away from the Bible itself. Uh, by the Middle Ages, that quickening idea was very, very popular. Um, I actually found out something this week. I didn't know this. Then in the 1960s and 70s, um, evangelical Christians were not at all unified on this issue. Uh, in fact, there were evangelicals making arguments that uh, human life did not begin until a baby was born. Uh, now, if you're interested in that, I want to recommend an article by Mark Galley in Christianity Today about the history of evangelicalism and abortion. I think he makes a compelling case that while we had not thought very deeply about the subject in the 60s and 70s, once we were forced to, by the changes in culture, a consensus in evangelical thought crystallized. And what you and I know today as shorthand for what it means to be an evangelical Christian includes pro-life uh, positions as a result. History gives us warrant for holding this position. And in fact, I would argue, rooted in the oldest traditions we have as Christians, uh, we should hold to this position. But I think that we would be wrong if we didn't take the time to at least examine a very compelling line of evidence, that's a third line of evidence, and that's science itself. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I don't pretend to be an expert on embryology or the way eggs are fertilized or anything like that. And yet, if you just spend some time on YouTube and reading a little bit, um, it is remarkable what we now know about how human beings uh, come about, and the way we can now confirm what the Bible teaches, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, with ultrasounds, we have been able to discover that heartbeats go all the way back around week five. Uh, we've been able to see that babies are able to respond to light and sound. Uh, they have uh, avoidances to pain in the womb. Uh, we've been able to discover that the chromosomes that decide whether you are male or female, that they're all in place from the very first moments of conception. We don't find out that the baby is a male or a female until much later, but that's all baked into the cake from the very beginning. Uh, I found something this, this week that I had never seen before that I found particularly amazing. Um, I call it the fireworks of life. In 2014, a team of researchers at Northeastern uh, were able to use some special scanning technology to capture the moment where the egg was fertilized 
And in that moment, there is a flash that occurs. It's a re chemical reaction of zinc that is, looks a lot like fireworks going off, to be honest. Now, the, all those things have been happening hidden inside the wombs of mothers, generation after generation, all the way back to the very first humans in the Garden of Eden. And yet God's known each and every one of them. Uh, and even the ones we haven't discovered yet. Uh, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Made in his image. And that is the case from the very moment we exist. All right, I, I hope I've convinced you of that. If I have not, um, allow me to do a little thought experiment with you. Um, if you are of the opinion that you do not want to say that life begins as conception, um, as a Christian, you certainly must say that God initiates life. So I have a question for you. Um, when? Uh, when does life start if you do not want to say it starts at conception? Uh, it actually does you no good, morally speaking, to say that you don't know when life begins. Uh, when it comes to the issue of abortion, if we are unsure when life begins, we have the moral imperative to make sure that we do not take part and certainly do not ourselves take uh, uh, cause an abortion to take place. Uh, consider, for example, uh, imagine you have a very different line of work than most of us do. Imagine you're on a demolition crew for a big high rise. And you and your crew have rigged up this high rise with explosives, all the permits have been made. You, you get into the bunker, with, I'm gonna imagine it's not a button, but that kind of box with the lever that goes down because that seems cooler to me. Um, it's the moment for the explosion to happen, right? And the person says, all right, explosion going off in five, four, three, and then someone yells, wait, 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 wait. I just saw some people in there. Now, at that moment, even if you have not yourself seen whether there are people in there or not, uh, you are under a moral obligation to not push down that lever. Um, it would be morally reckless. Um, it certainly would make you party to murder if there were people in there. Uh, but the, just the faint possibility that you might be part of unjustly taking a life would morally require you to stop until you can verify that that is not in fact the case. So if for uh, up until now my case to you has not been persuasive, I would invite you to consider the fact that you should still be against the practice of abortion from the very beginning of life until you can establish exactly the moment when life begins. And even the abortion proponents freely admit that they cannot pinpoint the moment when life exists, when you try and use the uh, criteria that this world would use. So I ask you, how will you make a choice of that gravity? If not using the testimony of scripture that we are fearfully and wonderfully made from the very beginning. Okay, that brings us to our second point, which will go much faster. What do we do with this? Uh, uh, what happens when we harm that image? And we have to use a clear moral word, and that word is murder. Uh, Ephesians 5:11 tells us we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them. 
Uh, as Christians, when we know something is morally wrong, we have a calling in the culture we live in to condemn, and that means taking no part in it ourselves. It also means uh, showing the moral bankruptcy of it. Now, there's a tendency to want to use euphemisms to talk about the reality of abortion. Um, that is because we don't want to harm people's feelings. We know it's politically charged. Um, I'm not for a second saying we should be cruel or to be insensitive and throw things in people's faces. Uh, and yet the right word to describe it, moral clarity, is the word murder. Exodus 20, 13 is where the prohibition against murder, unjust killing, comes from. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Um, it does not do our neighbors good. It certainly does not glorify God. And it certainly does not love the value of life in the womb to use words that are dancing around the issue. A clump of cells that's being removed, a, a procedure that's very private, uh, the ending of a pregnancy. Uh, none of those ways of describing what's happening have the level of moral seriousness needed. We have to just say what it is. It is murder. If we are made in the image of God from the beginning, then abortion is ending a life unjustly. Now, what do you do with that? I don't think the answer is to yell that at someone or just to tell them it's murder, it's murder, it's murder. That's not gonna convince uh, your non-Christian neighbor who's pro-choice. Uh, so what do you do? Uh, let me suggest a, a different tactic. This comes from author Scott Klusendorf in his book, The Case for Life. Uh, I think he very wisely, he suggests two tactics. Uh, one, draw out comparisons between life in the womb and life of children outside the womb. Um, there's a helpful way you can remember the distinctions you need to make. It comes with the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. Uh, so let's say you take my son Theo, he's five years old, and then you take uh, unborn life in the womb at five weeks. Uh, what are the differences between them? Well, the S in SLED stands for size. Uh, certainly, a five-year-old is bigger than a five-week-old. But is size really a determining factor, whether you are an image-bearer of God or whether you are a human that has value? Uh, because I am six foot two, I do not have more value than my wife, who is five foot two. So why would size alone tell us that someone is human or not? Uh, the L stands for level of development, level of development. Uh, certainly, my five-year-old son has developed much more than a five-week-old in the womb has. Uh, he is able to run and jump and do all sorts of things because his various systems in his body have developed and he's had time to grow. And yet, our level of development does not itself tell us whether someone is more valuable than the other. Uh, a teenager is no more valuable than a toddler, nor those of us that are in the twilight years. Are we any more valuable than those in the middle age years? Uh, the level of development is not a measurement of how valuable we are or our personhood. Uh, third, the E stands for environment. Where are you? Uh, my son, Theo, is not in the womb anymore. Uh, he is in some room somewhere. Um, but just because life in the womb is in the womb 
does not negate its value. Uh, you don't go from being human to not human if you are in space or underwater or in your car or here at church. Environment doesn't determine that. Fourth one, degree of dependency. That's the D. It's certainly true uh, that a five-week-old is far more dependent on their mother than a five-year-old. And yet, just because we're dependent on others or other things does not mean we're not human. If you need dialysis, you have no less value than someone who does not need it. Now, with this argument, I think uh, you can knock the cap off the head of your neighbor who maybe has not thought deeply about this subject. Show them that maybe they have not really thought through the implications of what they are trying to say is a right of a woman's body between her and her physician. Now, one uh, caveat to this, I think this argument is best used with questions that are asked. Um, ask them, why is it that you think that the environment of a child in the womb makes them not a human? Uh, why is it that size makes someone more or less valuable? Uh, ask in the form of a question so that they are forced to reckon with it. And maybe along the way, something clicks into place and you're able to win them winsomely. So I don't think that just because we are, uh, use the word murder, try to look with moral clarity, that means we should be ungracious or even lose sight of our goal, which is to win people. Uh, certainly to win the lives of the unborn uh, to prevent, present, uh, prevent them from being murdered, uh, but also to, to win the hearts and minds of those made in the image of God who, because of the moment they live and with the lies of the enemy circulating around us, are failing to see the goodness and the glory of God and what he makes in the womb. We have one last stage we're going to go through here, and that is mercy. So what happens with the reality of abortion? Uh, maybe we ourselves have taken part in one or had one, or, or even we just feel the weight of the fact that abortions are going on around, uh, are happening around us, and we're not sure what to do. This is our third and final point is mercy. Uh, we need to not lose fact, no matter how soberly we assess things morally or how weighty these issues are, that the mercy of God means that there is always hope. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 starts off in a very bleak case, uh, place. Uh, starts off with us spiritually in the grave. And you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Uh, what was our prognosis? It was not good. In fact, it was that we were already dead. We rebelled against God. We followed the course of the world and our own passions, and we did so in a multitude of different ways, and the end result... We are God's enemies, spiritually dead with no hope of bringing life to our own souls. But the good news comes in verse 4. But God, 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I was very thankful that uh, Ms. Diaz in that New York Times article uh, recognized that the Christian faith is rooted in the idea that pregnancies matters. Uh, she points back to the reality that Christianity is a story of a miracle pregnancy. And in fact, God's mercy and grace to us comes by way of a baby that was born. Uh, a baby was born different than all the rest of us, free from sin because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And yet that baby, after he was born, grew even to the point where he allowed a murder itself to become the instrument of mercy toward us. Uh, the man Jesus gave his life for sinners of all types, uh, people that rebelled against God by ignoring him their whole life, and people who rebelled against them by murdering other image bearers. Uh, Jesus allowed himself to be killed, to absorb the punishment each and every one of us that ever repent and believe in him deserve. And that means that there's good news, even for those of us that have failed when it comes to upholding the value of human life in every form. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're dealing with a load of guilt uh, because in some way you have been party to an abortion. Um, maybe you've had one yourself or you helped someone else have one. Or, or maybe you just stood by and did nothing when you know you should have done something. And as a result, an unborn life ended. Uh, friend, would you take that guilt and shame and bring it to the cross of Jesus? Would you allow his murder and his blood shed to cover you? And know there's now no condemnation for those who repent and find forgiveness in him. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and it's not guilt that you're weighing you down, but instead it's grief. Uh, maybe you lost a child or you've wanted the gift of life, and God has not granted you biological children, and that's a, a very, very difficult thing. Uh, would you remember the hope that this baby boy that grew and died and rose again that has for us in our griefs? Uh, one day there will be no more crying and pain. Uh, one day our tears will be wiped away. And, and on that day there will be a flash of life, of resurrection life, as we gain back those we've lost in the Lord and enter a life everlasting with him forever. Uh, look forward to that day and, and know right now, God sees you and he even sees those that you've lost. Allow him to bring comfort to your grieving heart even if no, no one else can. To all of us here this morning, no matter what we've done in the past or what we've not done. If, you, if you're a Christian, uh, recognize that you have a calling to live out and your call to live faithfully in the culture God's placed you. So what does this have you to do when it comes to this issue of abortion? Well, as we talked about last week, I would suggest start close to home and work your way out. Uh, each and every one of us has a role to play when it comes to influencing our culture on this issue, starting first and foremost in our purity and in the practice of our homes. 
uh, realize one of the things that brings about so many of the opportunities where abortion even looks uh, attractive, uh, like a viable option, come from um, the lack of willingness to remain pure and the lack of uh, value when it comes to marriage and God's intention within it. Uh, That means each and every one of our marriages, whether they are granted children or not, have an impact on this issue. Uh, Do we show the culture around us that marriage is a good gift, that children are not just a burden, but in fact, a bountiful gift from God? Uh, Do we show the culture that our marriage beds are worth holding in high esteem and that self-restraint, as difficult as it might be, is something that's given by God for our good. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're single, uh, you don't have a spouse, maybe you don't have kids, uh, know that the way you live your life as a Christian in front of your neighbors is influencing what they think, you think, about the value of life. Uh, Would you show them that life is more than our urges and doing what we want all the time? Uh, Would you show them that even self-sacrifice is a a calling that's worth living? And maybe might you even use the freedom you have as a single person to help those who do have children uh, to be able to make them thrive so that others would choose life when it's their turn. Uh, Move out from your house to your neighborhood. Ask yourself, is there something you can do to encourage maybe a single mother on your block or a family that's struggling with kids and doesn't have enough to make ends meet? Is there some way you might be able to come alongside and help so that they wouldn't even think that taking life would be an option? Uh, certainly there's things for us to do in the realm of politics. Uh, Roe v. Wade got a lot of attention, rightfully so. I hope you used your vote and stewarded it well and that uh, how you considered your national voice. Uh, Realize locally that just because Roe v. Wade's dead doesn't mean that the issue is dead. Uh, In fact, it just means that the local laws are all the more important. Uh, Did you know at this moment, the Indiana Supreme Court is hearing objections to the SB1 law that was passed that was outlawing most abortions in the state? And as a result, abortion providers are going without any impediment. Uh, You can use your influence which is far greater with your local representative. You can show up at their door, tell them what your Christian convictions would have you do. Uh, Use that, steward it well, uh, knowing that you can make a big difference in the way your neighborhood is governed. Uh, Now, one way that you can participate, uh, whether you have an ability to vote or not, um, we as a church try and take a stand on this issue through our local outreach partnership with an organization called Life Centers. Uh, Life Centers tries to uphold the value of life by helping mothers to choose life, by running pregnancy centers to provide all sorts of resources to mothers so they can understand the goodness and the gift of life in the womb, and know that they will have the resources when that baby arrives to be able to provide and bring that child up. Um, uh, Every time you drop money in the plate, a portion of it through our local outreach fund goes to Life Centers. And next Sunday, uh, we will have an opportunity that we do every year to raise money for their ministry. Uh, One of their directors, Brian Current, is going to come with baby bottles. Uh, We're going to have you take them home. 
Uh, every time you see the bottle, I hope you'll pray for the mothers that come into those centers. I hope you'll also consider what financial gift you might give so that life might be upheld and protected in the womb. Finally, there's no Christian action that will have any effect without prayer. I hope you, on your own, pray about this issue. I hope you rejoiced in your prayers when Roe Ro v. Wade were, was overturned. But I hope you are still praying that the Lord would help us increasingly to live in a place in a time where each and every one made in the image of God is upheld and protected and valued because they are known by God. Uh, one way you can live that out, come back tonight for our prayer meeting at five o'clock. We will have an opportunity to pray and one of the things we'll pray about is this very issue. Now brothers and sisters, I know that this is a weighty flashpoint issue and yet in God's providence, he has left you scriptures that instruct you and he has given you a place in the culture around you such that you have a calling. Uh, would you consider how he is calling you to act and how he might use you to protect the life of uh, those made in his image from the very beginning, even in the womb? I want to close with a story by a woman named Sarah Zargo Zargoski. Uh, Sarah was born to a mother who had... Uh, did not have a high value for life in the womb. Uh, in fact, she went in to have an abortion, to abort Sarah, 20-something uh, weeks, I think it was 26 weeks into her pregnancy. Now, God's providence, that abortion failed, and Sarah was born. And at the moment when the doctor was tearing, telling Sarah's mother to allow that child to expire, uh, the reality of seeing an image bearer of God with her own eyes changed her mother's heart. Uh, she immediately changed her mind and told the doctor, save my baby. And praise be to God, the doctor did. Now as a result, Sarah lived and grew. She had a really hard life. Um, it was a life, but it was a really, really hard one. Uh, full of neglect and abuse and all manner of difficulties that no child should have to endure. But in God's providence, Sarah was rescued a second time uh, when she was adopted by a Christian family. A Christian family that at one point had failed spectacularly when it came to the issue of abortion. Uh, the mother in that family, in fact, had had an abortion herself for her only biological child earlier in life. But she understood the mercy of God. And so they took Sarah into their home and loved her and kept her and built her up. And as a result, Sarah said this, my parents' actions saved my life. Unlike many who experience poverty and abuse in early childhood, I moved past my anguish, anguish beginnings to finish high school, graduate from college, and become a stable ad adult. More importantly, I met Jesus along the way. Uh, brothers and sisters, no matter where we find life, it is a gift from God made in his image to be upheld and valued and protected. Let's live out this calling in his name. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, we confess that our worth is not in what we do or say, it comes from the fact that we are made in your image 
and redeemed by your blood. Uh, Jesus, now would you help us to sing of your grace, to remember your life that was extinguished so that we might live forever. And give us a heart for those who are helpless in the womb. Would you help us to uphold and keep and protect and all that, with all the ability you give us so the world would see the goodness of life and the glory that you've intended it to bring to you. Jesus, now as we sing this song, would you lift our hearts and remind us of all we have in you. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.